Hello, and thank you for listening to the Microbit Feed Podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Professor Andrew Page. Nabil is the head of informatics at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK. And Andrew is the director of technical innovation for Theogen in Cambridge, UK. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and I'm a senior bioinformatician at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta in the United States. All right, so hey, we're here with Titus Brown. Andrew and I are your hosts today. And we wanted to get a little bit into sour mash. We were just having an offline conversation and just how well sour mash scales and especially in the context of metagenomics. I don't know if you want to give like a little intro on, on what sour mash actually is. I think we've kind of skirted around sure, yeah, yeah, on the previous yeah. one. Yeah. So so sour mash itself is a Python command command line Python package that uh, sits on top of a Rust library. Um, and does very fast uh, lossy compression of KMER datasets with the goal of enabling overlap analysis between large collections of KMERs. So you can you can go grab it from Conda or it's it's or you can do a pip install and it will let you do things like take two two samples two two DNA or RNA samples sketch them into much smaller datasets and then determine things like Jacquard similarity, similarity of the two data sets, overlap between the data sets in either direction, and also lets you do things like search very large databases of these sketches for, for matches. So that's that's like 80% of what SourMesh does is it sketches things and then lets you compare them to each other in a variety of ways. And the cool thing is that the the coolest thing about it, one, one of the two cool, coolest things about it are that is that it scales extremely well. So we typically, with the default parameters, we typically compress sequences uh, by around a factor of a thousand. So you can take a an E. coli genome that's five megabases in size, and you end up representing that with 5,000 hashes uh, that are sitting in a cute little JSON file on disk. So, you know, in the neighborhood of 30 KB. And that uh, lets you do things like find similar genomes, discover whether that E. coli is in a metagenome, uh, and um, basically those two things. <laughs> do taxonomic assignments, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I... I originally came across you just uh, mimicking MASH with a yep. with a with a library, but it sounds like with the five thousand hashes, like you might have like a few different default parameters that are different at this point. Is that is that what I'm picking up on? Well, we use a different sketching technique. Okay. So our sketches are to some extent com- we use this compatible sketching technique, but rather than retaining a fixed number of hashes like what MASH does, where MASH says you pick how many hashes you want and that's how many we're going to extract and that's going to be forevermore what you what you use for comparisons we we extract hashes at a what i would call a a fixed sampling rate so if you have a 3 gigabase genome say human and you and you use our standard technique for downsampling which is this fragment hash approach you would end up with about 3 million hashes whereas mash would still give you whatever you know 500 or 1000 the downsides of this, of course, for, for SourMash are that your sketches get bigger as your data sets get bigger. So for metagenomes, if you have a very large metagenome, you're going to get a very large sketch for it. But the upsides are that you can then do containment analysis. So you can say, oh, for this metagenome, what genomes are in this metagenome? 
and you can answer that question with just the sketches. You don't need to go back to the raw data, which is how most of the other techniques, including the mash screen technique work. So the, the, the sour mash is really focused on metagenomics and containment and overlap analyses rather than on Jacquard similarity comparisons. Okay, incredible. So my, my personal story with sour mash is I thought it would be great for a genomic epidemiology platform. And I started developing this with my student at UGA, at the University of Georgia. And the, this, I think this is a compliment to you that your code is so elegant, we figured out how to code it up, make a nice platform where we could query anything in under a thousand lines of code. Awesome. And that number is important because we submitted it to Joss. Oh no. And they re they desk rejected oh, no. it. Oh no. Because because it was under a thousand lines of code. And so we we've been spending the last like half year just adding in more features so we could have more code in there. <laughs> I that says something in good about Sour Mash. Thank you. And it I wonder, you know, I'm worried about I'm worried about what it says about Joss. A little bit. We'll have a better paper for it. You know, at the end of every review process, it's painful and then you have a better paper. So I, I think there's that. But then I think it's definitely an arbitrary number. Wow. I guess yeah. it's to avoid the, uh, you know, the 20 line bash scripts, you know, which I'm sure they've, they've gotten. Yeah. So I, I serve on the, I guess I'm a guest editor still. I don't know if I've officially joined the editorial board for PyOpenSci, which is sort of, which is sort of focused on um, Python, you know, Python and open science, and they have a review process that sits on top of JOSs. So the idea is that they they will review your package with their own standards for coding and tests and stuff. And then as part of that, you'll get an expedited review process for JOS. And I will say that consistent topics of discussion on the PyOpenSci editorial channel are, is this enough? Is this big enough? Is this different enough? And I'll just say, you know, my philosophy, which I have espoused openly on the editorial board is we shouldn't be worried about if it's different enough. We should, we should maybe big enough. Yes. But differences in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, if there's a lot of diversity out there, we should let the environment select rather than, than prejudging, but it would oh, add to nice. the review burden. So I don't know. I take a very microbiome, take a very microbiome approach to this, right? Everything is everywhere in the environment selects. Yeah. yeah, this is like your software. It's, there might be noise out there, but you know, let That's right. it should be robust enough. Yeah. But so, so since I led you to, to this topic of scaling, uh, I want to, I want to tell you about something that we're kind of, we're kind of absurdly excited about, despite the fact that we don't have that many great use cases for it. And that is this thing called branch water. And if you go to branchwater.saramash.bio, I'm hoping this makes your heads explode in a nice way. This is a real-time search for a genome within all of the SRA metagenomes. So go to the examples and click on, this is my favorite search here, click on the, the bottom one, star 11, and now click submit. And if you could count out loud, did you click submit? Yeah, okay. And if you could just count out loud. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
Tab. Did you actually click submit? Oh, there we Let are. Let me try it again. Scroll down. Scroll down. All right. Oh, so, oh, let's try that again. Try it again. <laughs> All right. All right. Make here we go. Screen bigger. There we are. <laughs> okay. So now you One, can count. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, eleven. Oh. Okay. So what what we just did was we did a search for SAR eleven, which is a uh, um, uh, ubiquitous marine microbe, and uh, it returned nine thousand accession IDs. Those are nine thousand different SRA metagenomes that contain SAR eleven. But it gets better. Scroll down. Oh. Okay. And you can see you can see all of the GPS. You can see a map of all of the samples where this genome is found. And SAR11 is everywhere where there's marine, everywhere marine. So basically what this map is, is it's a map of everywhere people have done ocean sampling and deposited the results in the sequence read archive. Oh, this is incredible. Oh. I yep. guess for for me, is it in any human micro human gut microbiomes or anything of like that? Like, could do you see it as contamination? So, can you scroll up a little bit? I don't remember if in this one we have done a way to filter. Go over to organism on the right at the top of the spreadsheet. So you can see activated sludge. We we don't have a good way to do. Can you do a keyword search for gut? I don't know there. So it's in some bovine gut metagenomes. And, because and often you'll more. see Do a search for human. Do a search for human. Often human will be, or often contamination will be like marine and soil bacteria happen to be in sterile body sites and stuff like that. Well, like it's, in, it's in one gut and one oral metagenome. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so... So there's a funny story behind this. And we're going to come back to Luis again. <laughs> so Luis Erber, my co-conspirator on Saramash, who saw me, you know, watched his advisor's GitHub, saw me contributing stuff to this repository called Saramash, and then was like, ooh, this could use better code and more tests and, you know, continuous integration and a release process. And just started adding pull and you know better data structures. Just started adding adding uh, <laughs> adding code. Um, this became a core. Saramash became a core part of his thesis. In fact, his thesis is basically all about Saramash and then the data structures in Saramash and then um, how to monitor GenBank and automatically construct signature sketches, Saramash sketches for every new sequence that came into GenBank, and then how to search all of those all of those things. Um, and so the story behind Branchwater, this website that I'm showing you, um, is that the underlying code was written because, this is my interpretation, Luis may disagree, the underlying code was written because Luis didn't want to write his thesis. <laughs> so Luis had convinced me and in, in he had a very, he has a very, he had a very sneaky way of convincing, he has a very sneaky way of convincing me to do things. He had convinced me that we should swap out the C++ extension library under Saramash for Rust. And he basically said, look, Rust is just a better piece of software and it'll let us do a better language and it'll let us do um, multi-threading very easily. And I was like, great, because the biggest problem in Saramash was that we didn't do multi-threading. We still don't do multi-threading. Um, maybe tell you more about that in a second. 
So what Luis did, I was like, well, I don't know. My biggest worry is I don't know Rust, or I didn't know Rust, and I didn't want to have to learn it in order to maintain Saramash. And something I've learned over the years is that everybody leaves the lab but me. So I'm going, I'm the maintainer of last resort. So anyway, so what he did was he put in, I don't know how many weeks or months of work, he wrote a pull request that swapped out the C++ layer for a Rust library. And then he's like, hey, it's all working. And I was like, uh, okay. He's like, can I push the button? I was like, I, I guess. And so we pushed the button and swapped out and it's between SourMash 2 and SourMash 3, the under the the underlying extension library was switched over to Rust. And all the we had great tests on the Python side. Uh, I love writing automated tests for things. So all of the tests passed, everything worked great. And then Luis was like, well, I don't want to write my thesis. I want to play more with Rust. So what he did was he wrote a multi-threaded Rust front end to SourMesh called Branchwater. And his use case for this was, hey, I've been sketching all of the metagenomes in the sequence read archive for a while now. We're up to like 500,000 at this point. And I can't search them using SourMesh because it's too slow and single-threaded. So I'm going to write a Rust front end that lets me use all of the underlying ideas in SourMesh but just isn't as easy to use because it's a it's a Rust command line front end rather than a Python, you know, a, a fully developed Python front end. But it will be blazingly fast because Rust makes multi-threading more or less trivial. So we wrote something that would not have passed Joss's review criteria. It was under a thousand lines of code. I think it's like 200 lines of code. Some wrote something called Branchwater. And it was basically SourMash, but multi-threaded. And um, we could scale it up to something like between 30 and 40 threads before it overwhelmed our file system. And he could he developed this technique that let us, the software that let us search all of the 500,000 sequence read archive metagenomes in about 18 hours on one of our compute nodes. Wow. And then we were like, hey, what can we use this for? What's a use case? And we didn't have one. And over the next couple of years, we found two. There's one use case that a guy named Adrian Vieweger, he's a MD bioinformatician in Germany, came up with, which was source tracking. He They had a breakout of, I think it was Klebsiella in their hospital, and he wanted to not just do source tracking within the hospital, but across all of the public genomes and metagenomes. So he used it to search, he used Branchwater to search all of the, all of the metagenomes, found one match to the particular strain. Uh, along with a bunch of other matches in the genome database, and then published, they published that, and I, they tracked the outbreak to uh, origin to Greece somewhere, and that's where it fell apart because they didn't have enough high density sampling in Greece. And then um, another collaborator uh, here at UC Davis found another use case, which was they had searching for doing biogeography on interesting genomes. So my collab my collaborator friend and collaborator Don Sumner. And her then postdoc, Christy Grettenberger, and a former student of mine named Jessica Lumian basically got hit with COVID. Not, not the lab got hit with COVID. They stopped doing experimental work and they needed something to do. And they decided, well, we have these five Antarctic cyanobacterial mags that we've isolated from our, our Antarctic mat, you know, lake work. And we want to know where they are. This will be a great, you know, a great COVID COVID exercise because we don't, we can't do experiments, so we're gonna we're gonna do some bioinformatics, and so they did a search again using this Branchwater tool across all of the metagenomes, and they found that you know long story short, this this paper is available on BioArchive and will be published hopefully soon. They found that you know some of the Antarctic cyanobacteria were very 
limited to cold environments. Others were cosmopolitan, and yet others were, were very specific to extreme environments, not just cold. But they could do this. They could take five mags and they could search all of all of the sequence read archive metagenomes and then dig into what the matches were and, and so on and so forth. And that, that's a really nice validation paper of, of, for the branch water stuff. It's also pretty exciting scientifically, but I, of course, was excited that it showed that our matches were legit. So, so that's where we were as of like two or three years ago. And then Luis graduated and kept on working on SourMash in his, in his um, spare time. And I had a, a postdoc, Tessa Pierce Ward, who started to get very interested in this. And through a combination of things, Luis basically, Luis was invited to give a talk at the Joint Genome Institute and decided that 18 hours was too slow. So he developed uh, an inverted index for the entire sequence read archive. That's what you're seeing right here, where you can do essentially real-time search using a RocksDB-based um, inverted index of the hashes uh, across um, now a million sequence read archive metagenomes. And Tessa, uh, along with um, Suzanne Fleischman and um, Adam Rivers at the USDA, put together a web interface on top of that, that's what we are using right here, that let you do the search and then get real-time visualization of the of the GPS coordinates for where these things showed up in, um, in metagenomes. So we're really excited about this. This is sort of petabase scale search. We're searching something in the neighborhood of 10 petabases of sequence read archive metagenomes in real time. Admittedly, what we've done is we've indexed them all. So we scrunched them down by a factor of a thousand. So it's actually about 14 terabytes on disk. And then they're indexed into a RocksDB database and you can take any genome you want. It will scrunch the genome down using our sketching technique on the browser side. So because we're using Rust, we now have a WebAssembly version of SourMash that's fully runs in the browser. It, it scrunches, it does the, the sketching on the client side and then sends it to the backend Branchwater server, which does the finding. And then there's JavaScript on the front end that, that does the visualization. And it all works quite well. It's also fully deployable on private metagenomes. If you had your own collection of hundreds or thousands of metagenomes, you could do this, do this too, stand all this up on your own. It's all a free and open source software. It's not super well documented yet. We're working on that. And now the biggest problem, and I think this is a hilarious statement on bioinformatics as well. The biggest problem is it's not clear what the use cases really are. There's no one dominating use case. Source tracking, maybe. We have yet to demonstrate that it works really well for that. Biogeography, sure, but how many people want to do biogeography? It's not entirely clear. Despite this, like we're really excited about it because it's, it's just cool. There's a whole NIH initiative on petabase scale search, and lots of people are implementing stuff in the space, and we still don't really know what we would use it for. There's a lot of use cases. Like, for example, if you get, I don't know, XDR resistance popping up in, in typhoid, where did it come from? Did it come from something that's been sampled on the other side of the world, you know, and kind of reconstructing that story of how resistance moves around? Or if you find something and you think, is this, well, something in metagenome, and it's like, is this just a, a local British thing, you know, because of our lifestyles and we're very insular? Or is it widespread? And is this the true cause of a, a pathogen? So, right. So I'm going to say two or three things here. So one is, Absolutely. We totally want to do that stuff. And I think yeah. we can. There's a couple problems though. One is this question of 
of what the level of specificity is. Like, are we getting down to strain level stuff? I think our answer is yes, but we haven't really conclusively proven that yet. Another is we don't fund, again, I'm, I'm gonna, we talked a lot about this uh, off recording, but I would say like, there's not, it's a chicken and egg problem. I think we can do this, but right now we need the fund, we need to figure out how to support the work necessary to show that it actually really works, if that makes sense. And there's not a lot of funding out there in this exploratory realm of, well, we have some like vague and fuzzy use cases, but nobody's really incredibly urgent about solving this problem tomorrow. And there's no call for this, like that's sitting on my desk. This so is an incredibly fortunate discussion because, because I, I I think I'm chomping at the bit just like Andrew is here because there are so many use cases. Excellent. Like, like definitely source tracking and you can say source tracking of, of AMR genes for sure. Where CDC is actively engaged in like wastewater analysis and tracking where pathogens are, are getting higher or lower or where they're present or they're absent. And, cool. and then, and then getting into the earlier discussion, like what species is it? What, what lineage is it? You can start diving in, like, and and just start tracking where all these subpopulations are going around. Yep. This is this is totally a public public health problem. That's awesome. Well, so there's two other flies in the ointment that I want to mention just before people get too excited. One is that the the resolution is somewhat is still somewhat limited. If you want to search for things under 10 kb in size, you start to get false negatives. It works exceedingly well. Above that, we know how to adjust the parameters to drop the false negatives. We would just need to resketch the entire sequence read archive, which would take a couple months. Uh, but so that's that's straightforward to do. The other thing is, and and this is a weird, this is going to be a weird one. It's 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 actually where a lot of my follow-on work has been, a lot of the lab's follow-on work has been. You don't actually get the we're doing we're dealing with sketches here. So you don't actually get the sequences. What you get is a statement like this thing you searched for, it's probably in this metagenome. And then you need to follow up on it. So, you know, there's a level of indirection. We call it the sort of, we've, we've hit, we've narrowed it down to sort of this hit to lead terminology. Like we're giving you hits that are probably pretty good leads for you to follow up on. We're not giving you a definitive answer. I mean, sure. Like you, you'd get like the answers from the genome and then you could probably like, um, just, just retroactively, or what's it called, a flex culture, some things, and, and actually do like a molecular clock or get some directionality for sure. Like yep. I can, I think, in my opinion, sketches are definitely like a a way to narrow down what you need to do, but it's it's usually not like the last thing you do. Exactly. Like you have to, exactly. You have to polish it. Yeah, exactly. But I think we can get, I think we can get to the point where, you know. We, we we have there's a bunch of theoretical work and here I want to shout out my collaborator David Kosliki and Tessa Pierce Ward who I mentioned before who together with uh, one of David's grad students oh no I'm blanking on his name his his last name is Raman Hera and I've just forgotten his first name and I'm so sorry but uh, there's a publication out they've been able to uh, tie these our sketch statistics to A and I so we can tell you for a given match what the A and I is between the the query and the match. So we can do things like that. Uh, and we know what the resolution. So we have li good limits and, and sort of bounds on where our stuff works well, where it doesn't work. We know how far away you get before you start to lose signal and all of that other stuff. And if that's actually all published at this point. So 
Um, we're very interested in character in accurately characterizing the limits of our techniques so that you know when you need to pick up a different tool. So we don't think Sour Mash is the thing that everybody should use. We we want to just be really clear about where it is useful and what it can do. And coming back around to the beginning of, of this segment of the podcast, it scales ridiculously well. And that has been really cool. And it's nice to hear that there's a bunch of really good, strong use cases in public health because we've always felt that way, but I guess we failed to talk. We failed to reach out to the right people who appear to be you two. Thank you so much for that. We all love tools that scale ridiculously well. It is often overlooked and, you know, our desire to search for everything versus our desire to get a result in a reasonable time, you know, obviously conflict sometimes. So thank you so much for talking to us again today. And I think this will be the final time we talk to you, but it's been great over the past few weeks and yeah, good luck in all your endeavors. Thank you. It's been great. Been great being on here. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.